This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, November 6, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Ayn Rand could have appropriately seen herself as just one of many people in a long intellectual tradition, but she didn't. She could have viewed libertarians in general as something more than thieves of ideas she claimed as her own. She didn't. And despite her odd personal animosities, Ayn Rand's writings have had incredible shelf life and influence. Jennifer Byrne's new biography of Ayn Rand is Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. We spoke last week. Ayn Rand doesn't fit neatly into uh, the sort of political definitions that we've got in the United States. Where were her friends? And in politics in like the 40s and 50s? Well, the first group that Rand really made contact with in terms of her political interests and her political organizing were American businessmen who were opposed to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. So that was the the early eager audience for The Fountainhead and for her uh, novel Anthem, which was actually reprinted by a group called the Pamphleteers, which was one of the first libertarian groups started in the early 40s by Leonard Reed, who went on to form the Foundation for Economic Education. So this was the first group Rand found, and she tended to focus on smaller businessmen, um, those who saw... Uh, Roosevelt's New Deal as a violation of traditional patterns and norms of governance who felt that, you know, programs like the NRA and um, uh, things like that were, were not constitutional or were not traditional, really not ethical. And so what Rand tried to do was provide them with a set of arguments and persuasive material they could use to promote their ideas. And they really seized on Rand as wow, we can use her, we can um, use her novels, use her ideas. And so you start seeing her turn up in um, things like letters that corporations would send to their employees, or CEOs might photocopy parts of her, or mimeograph, it was was back then, mimeograph parts of her novels and ideas and send them out to their colleagues and their friends and say, you've got to read this, this is really important. So that was sort of the first group she began with. And it's hard to categorize these people according to what we have today. Rand herself at that point in time was calling herself a reactionary. That was the word she was most comfortable with. We reactionaries in that they wanted to go back to the time before the New Deal. Did she have any kind of uh, working relationship with Leonard Reed? I know their religious views were strikingly different uh, from each other. Did they have any type of relationship? You know, they actually had a very close relationship for some time before it, it sort of exploded. And interestingly, religion wasn't really the issue. Um, the issue actually came. So let me just lay out this situation. She meets Leonard Reed. Uh, as soon as she gets to Hollywood, he looks her up, and he's the head of the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce. She's moved to Hollywood to help with a film adaptation of The Fountainhead. He looks her up. He says, come to dinner with some of my friends. They'd like to meet you. She meets a whole host of leading libertarian businessmen she meets um, R.C. Hoyles, the founder of the Freedom Newspapers. He talks a lot about religion at this dinner. So they don't get along. They have no relationship. Reed really strikes her as a promising young man who can do something, who can make change happen. And so she's very fond of him. He's very fond of her. Lots of affectionate letters back and forth when he moves to New York and starts, becomes F.E.E. And so he 
uh, says to her, will you act as my ghost? Will you read material I send out and tell me if it's ideologically correct? This is, this is exactly what Rand wants. She's delighted to play this role. And so she starts, you know, reading things and sending him letters. And then one day in the mail, she gets a pamphlet that FEE has published, and it's called Roofs or Ceilings. It's authored by Milton Friedman and George Stiegler. And she hasn't been sent this pamphlet before. This is the first she's seeing it. It's already published. It already has the organization's name on it. And she thinks it's, as she says, quote, the most pernicious thing ever issued by a conservative organization or a so-called conservative organization. And she just flies off the handle because she sees the premises and argumentation in this pamphlet as fundamentally collectivistic. Even though it's arguing against rent control, it's arguing against it um, in the terms of collectivism, using the language of collectivism. And indeed, Friedman later, kind of reflecting on where he is at this point in his life, says he's in the transition away from Keynesianism. So Rand is picking up on something in this piece that was there, but she's livid and she feels very hurt that Reed did not ask for her advice before publishing this pamphlet. So she sends him this angry letter. She sends everybody angry letters. Situation is very tense. Before that situation has resolved, Reed sends her another letter. And he's taken an early piece of writing she did, the textbook of Americanism, and he sent it around to his donors and his board and said, what do you think of this? And they've written back with their opinions, and then he's typed them up in, you know, a two-page uh, little booklet, and he mails it to Rand and said, here's, here's some feedback on your textbook of Americanism. And Rand is shocked and insulted. She didn't ask for this feedback. She doesn't know why he's giving it to her. She thinks of herself as someone who's going to be advising Reed, and now Reed's advising her. So she sends him another extremely angry letter and says, you must tell me immediately who said these things about my work. And Reed writes back and says, I took all these uh, opinions in confidence. I will not share them with you. I'm sorry you feel this way. And there's no more contact ever again. And, you know, Rand is very disappointed. And that's one of the first times in her life that she steps back from political organizing and political activism and says, wait a second, maybe we need to go back to the fundamentals because even someone like Leonard Reed, who seems so promising, is so misdirected and so wrong on the fundamentals. So Reed, in fact, was one of the people who got her really excited about playing this role as a political activist and then dashed all her hopes. Um, and that's something I, you know, I, I sort of tell this whole story, um, basing it on research I did in Rand's papers at the Ayn Rand archives and also research in Leonard Reed's papers as well. Talking about that uh, difficulty of their relationship, if I understand correctly, Ayn Rand also had threatened to sue Reason magazine after they had produced a, a fairly glowing uh, issue about her. What was the what what brought that about? That, I believe, was in the early 1970s, and that really reflected Rand's general hatred for the libertarian movement more generally. Um, you know, there are multiple connections between Rand and libertarianism, but Rand saw them as she called libertarians scumbags, plagiarists, people who steal my ideas, mix them with other things, um, and then don't give me any credit. And so she hated libertarians. She generally, um, to her, being halfway wrong was almost worse than being totally wrong. So the fact that libertarians' ideas resembled hers and that they called for limited government, they supported capitalism, 
but they did not have a, a rational morality or fixed morality. You know, libertarianism is a political philosophy. It doesn't come with a built-in morality. Rand thought that was a big problem, that you needed uh, a rational morality like the one she had designed in her system of objectivism. So I think uh, the threatened lawsuit against reason needs to be understood in her larger reaction to libertarianism and her larger frustration that she was losing control of her ideas as she saw it. And she had very strong feelings about intellectual property rights, felt that you couldn't take part of her ideas, you had to take the whole thing. And to see a whole group of people taking bits of her ideas, um, and, and she didn't admit that there were other sources for these ideas, saw it as a wholesale transfer from her, um, that just outraged her. Um, so I think you can understand it as part of that. This was also a pretty difficult time in her life. Um, she had gone through a series of you know, personal betrayals after the breakup of the Nathaniel Brandon Institute. Her husband was in ill health. She was in ill health. And I think all of those factors combined to this extremely negative reaction to the reason piece. It would have been appropriate for Ayn Rand, I think, to see herself in some ways as part of a pretty strong intellectual tradition. But uh, if I understand you correctly, she didn't. She didn't. And this was something that um, I spend a lot of time in the book tracing how she did come out of an intellectual tradition and an intellectual community. Earlier in her career, she was more willing to admit that. Um, she had close relationships with um, people like Isabel Patterson. She had a close relationship with Ludwig von Mises. She was reading a lot of other people. Um, she was developing her ideas. Um, you know, she described her experience with Patterson as this, um, you know, experience that could never be repeated and said Patterson really taught her the fundamentals about American capitalism and government. And over the course of her career, she became more and more insistent that she really had thought of everything herself and became less willing to acknowledge others and more focused, especially as she saw objectivism, her philosophy is really the main achievement that she'd made and in insisting that it was objectivism which she had constructed bit by bit, piece by piece, and it didn't really fit anywhere. It didn't really belong anywhere. So as an intellectual historian, I look at Rand and I take what she says about her work and I weigh it against how would we, looking at the broader panorama of American thought, where would we fit her in? What can we, what can we relate her to? Um, she is unique in many ways, but I think putting her in this libertarian tradition makes a lot of sense, particularly because she's taken as an inspiration and a guiding post for so many people who sort of revitalized libertarianism in the late 20th century. Jennifer Burns is author of the new biography, Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. We spoke after a Cato Forum, The Life and Impact of Ayn Rand, held October 28th. You can watch the forum at cato.org.